Um, no, seriously, we're in this season of Lent, and Lent really is a chosen season, right? It's, it kind of falls into a place in our calendar that we may or may not pick. Right now, like this weekend is a pretty beautiful weekend, right? It's a, it's a gorgeous weekend. There's a lot of life around us. We see the birthing of new things. Um, grass is growing, trees are in bloom, all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, like as a faith family and as a faith like family across the globe, we're in a season of kind of mourning, of moving into feeling the weight of the, the movement of Jesus towards the cross and all that that means, both in its, in its reality of shedding light on our lives as well as in the glories to come on Easter, right? And so all those things are kind of colliding. And what makes Lent kind of special is that no matter what's going on in our life right now, um, no matter where our lives find ourselves, we're, we are choosing as a faith family to enter into a season where we're being reflective uh, on how our life lines up with the life of Jesus. His life lived, his life given up for us, his life taken back up and lived again. How does our life find its place in the life of Jesus. And there's no better way to do that than through letting the words of Jesus examine us, letting the words of Jesus reveal our hearts, our actions, our attitudes in light of his life. And that's why we are looking at the letters of Jesus to the churches of Revelation this Lent. Letting the words of Jesus speak to us, us, not just individually, but us together as a collective, because that's what these words are. The words that we're about to read in just a few moments um, from Revelation chapter 2, so if you have our Bibles, you can turn there, are words not written just to individuals, but to a group, just like this, the gathered. The people who, are, who have given their lives to Jesus, who long for their lives to be given fully and totally to Jesus, who long for their lives to be ones who live in reflection of the life, again, of Jesus alive. That's what we desire, right? And so today we're entering into words that, again, we may not enter, you may not have come in today feeling heavy, but the first two songs we sang were kind of heavy songs, right? But somebody in our faith family feels heavy. Somebody in the family of God today feels heavy, right? Whether they're here or not here. And so this is a reality for all of us to enter into. So wherever we feel, it doesn't necessarily matter as much as that together we're in this place of letting the words of Jesus call us to feel kind of the weight of this season, and the weight of these words particularly, the words of Smyrna. And so I believe Matt's going to come and read for us um, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the one who is the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We pray with me. Father, we thank you um, for this time to be together and together hear the words of Jesus. And so I just pray over the next few moments as we um, look at these words, as we let these words examine our hearts um, and our lives, that um, individually and collectively our, our, our minds, our hearts, our souls would be open to you, to your voice, to what you would have to say to us. Lord, not just to show us where we're off or um, 
um, or where we, we are struggling, Father Lord, but to, even in those things, show us um, the more in life that you have for us through Jesus, to cling to him, to hold to him, to live in him and with him. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. So if you remember, in our preparation for Lent, we said that salvation is the restoring of right relationship, not only between God and us, but us and us, between us and our world. And so it's not just our individual salvation that we're after, but righteousness of a community. And it arrives, as we said in these stories of preparation before Lent, through a life lived in kind to the life given for us, given to us. Our lives made right through Jesus' action and our lives lived loyally, that is, in honor of and aligned with the intent of Jesus, is what brings salvation. So Jesus' action saves us in one sense, right? It draws us and reconciles us to God. But as we saw, especially in the story of Zacchaeus, right? When Jesus says, now salvation has come to this house and this community, it comes because Zacchaeus has responded to what Christ has done for him with the same kind of affection and love, commitment and loyalty that Jesus has extended him. And this is what brings about wholeness and fullness, not just for us, but for our communities, for the men and women we share life with in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. And each of the seven letters of Jesus speak to this loyalty, this life response in kind to what we received. And it does it so to each particular congregation that they might receive more of Jesus, encouraging where they are in, in these words, Jesus encourages them where they're walking in step with his person and purpose. He points out where their steps are out of alignment and promises more of himself, more of his life as they continue, as they conquer, as they live loyally to him in faith. And that's the pattern of each of the letters. We saw that a little bit last week. We'll just throw it up as a reminder. Here's the pattern. Each letter, the relationship is acknowledged. Identity is in Jesus of each church. There's an encouragement, an admonishment, and there's a promise through Jesus. Each of the seven letters follows this pattern in some way. So let's talk about the context of this letter and its pattern before we get to kind of dialogue together about what this may say to our faith family in this moment. So Smyrna. Smyrna was a city reborn in splendor. In 600 BC, the city was destroyed by Lydia and existed as a collection of villages for nearly 300 years. And that is until Alexander the Great commissioned its rebuilding. Through the authority and power behind this commanded rebirth, Smyrna became one of the first planned cities of the ancient world and thus architecturally exquisite and advanced. This wasn't, it wasn't like Dallas, where it's spaghetti, not planned at all, DFW, where there's like almost no architectural beauty, not in the sense that there aren't individual places of beauty, but no designed beauty in the sense of the way the city functions. Smyrna was the exact opposite of that. Everything was designed with intentionality and purpose to complement both the natural beauty and the natural surroundings as well as take advantage of the architectural time and planning that comes in to make a city exquisite. Smyrna was famous for its temple to Zeus and Sibyl, which capped either end of this great mall that was one of the ancient world's envies. This group of expertly designed and magnificently maintained buildings was known as the Crown of Smyrna. It literally sat on top of the city's edge and overlooked the city. Encircling this stunning coalescence like a jeweled necklace was a beautiful roadway that was called the Street of Gold that ran through Smyrna. So it had a crown, it was a a, a temple of worship to Sybil and to Zeus that sat atop of the hill that kind of surrounded the city kind of in this arc. And around through this arc, right in the middle of it was the, the, the Street of Gold. So 
You think about like our understanding of heaven and what heaven might look like. Smyrna might have been, at least in the ancient world, a replication of heaven to some degree or another. No other street, no other city could compare. But not only was the city designed to be beautiful, but its natural features added to its reputation. Surrounding the city were groves of trees that produced an aromatic gum called myrrh. Yes, it's the same myrrh that the wise men brought from the east to Jesus' feet. Capped by the crowned ridge, surrounded by groves of precious trees, and sitting on idyllic waters that cooled the city during the hot summer months, Smyrna was truly a paradise. It was as close as you could get to our idea of what heaven is, right? I think, again, like this is to a church in Revelation. If you've read Revelation before, like all these kind of images of the city will kind of come out in different places, right? When we think about even, even our heavenly city, right? And so Smyrna, in some ways, kind of encapsulated, at least physically, what we might think of as a celestial city, a paradise. Add to the visual splendor that Smyrna claimed to be the birthplace of the famed Greek poet Homer. And it was not only a place of beauty, it was also a place of creativity, of where the natural, the designed, and the creative all came together for excellence. And like Ephesus, Smyrna was a free city, free because of its distinction as Rome's most loyal city. So this heavenly city, heavenly city on earth, was Rome's most loyal city. Even before Rome had risen to absolute power, Smyrna threw its lot in with the soon-to-be empire. It maintained an excellent relationship with Rome and was one of four cities to host the providential assembly. It was the first city in Asia to erect a temple to the goddess Roma in 195 B.C. In AD 26, because of its long loyalty to Rome, it beat out ten other cities for the privilege of building a temple to the emperor Tiberius. In succeeding decades, about the time of Jesus' address, it became the center for the imperial cult. The details of daily living, all the things that make up a life, work, vocation, municipal services, faith and religion, were all one in Smyrna. You You couldn't untangle politics, work, life from one another, religion from one another. Economy, politics, religion formed a three-corded strand that is not easily broken. In this marvelous metropolis, everyone, everyone wanted to exalt Smyrna. Everyone wanted Smyrna to be known for what it is, to see this grand and beautiful place and had a personal desire to climb to the top of the municipal tree. They loved their city. And they didn't just love their city, they wanted to be high up in their own city, right? That was, that was the culture of Smyrna. Everyone played the game well. Well, almost everyone anyway. After Jesus acknowledges the human and divine relationship with the church, in verse 8 of chapter 2, when Jesus says, "Into the angel of Smyrna write, Jesus always then introduces himself with a depiction, a description from chapter 1's vision, that most suits the situation of that specific faith family. So, and if you look at, again, in your Bibles, look at chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus begins by acknowledging the relationship, heaven and divine, the angel, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? And then Jesus describes himself. Himself depicted in chapter 1, now repeated again in chapter 2. Now, if you remember from last week, the Ephesian church was a protector of Jesus at least in words, if not always in his ways. A people who felt like they had to fight to uphold Jesus amongst a plethora of options, to uphold the church's distinct in a place that's selling all kinds of goods and services of religious order. If they didn't, who would, they thought. They thought their loyalty was the standard and the model for others, and in some ways it was. To be 
to do the faith family of Ephesus, Jesus is depicted as the one who has them in his hands. They don't have Jesus in theirs. Jesus is depicted as one who has authority and judgment and is over all the churches. Their church isn't. And of whom they are but one, not the one, of the churches that Jesus indwells. Standing firm without growing weary is good, but only if it is love in which they stand. At least that's what we learned last week in Ephesus. Jesus does not need your protection, though he does desire your steadfastness and loyalty because you are loved by him, because you're one of his, because he holds you and protects you. To protect without love is to lose the very thing. God, who so loved the world, sent the Son to die to do. And so... In the first picture in Ephesus, we have a picture of Jesus being one who stood amongst the people who thought they had it all and were the standard of it all. And Jesus says, no, wait, I'm the standard and I hold you. You don't protect me, I protect you. And so because you're loved and protected, now love like you were loved. To the faith family of Smyrna, they were in a different spot. They were not fighting for faith, but they were surviving it. They were fighting to live. They were a people confined because of their expressed loyalty to Jesus, barred from the basics for daily living, running into afflictions at every turn. To this faith family, whom we know little about in origin or influence, unlike the Ephesians, Jesus is depicted as the utter sovereign, the utter sovereign over all of life and even death. Jesus is, in verse 8, the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus is life himself, the one who gives life and frees from the fears of death daily and forever because he has defeated it. To a faith family desperate for life, Jesus is depicted as the one who's not just living, but the one who overcomes the things that take life. If the Ephesians most needed humility, this love that comes from a humility, a love that overflows because of the humble like, remembering of what the Father has done for them, Smyrna's faith family needed hope. While their loyalty was no less than the Ephesians, it was pressed differently. The Ephesians held fast to Jesus in a world of options for something other, twisted and commingled. The Smyrnans were holding fast in a world closed off because of their commitment to the way of Jesus. In this address alone, Jesus modifies his encouragement from, I know your works, to in verse 9, I know your tribulation. That is your compression, restriction, I know that you're being squeezed, is what the term literally means. And your poverty, though you're rich. And the slander or blasphemy that you receive. Despite their apparent lack, the fruit of their loyal labors, their sticking with Jesus and one another when it would be easier not to, is abundant, even if they don't necessarily recognize it. Jesus recognizes that right now they're being squeezed and it feels like all of life is being poured out of them. And yet Jesus says, you're rich. There's an abundance being poured into you, even in the midst of it. The faith family of Smyrna found themselves on the outside of everything that made Smyrna, Smyrna. The entanglement of politics, religion, and economics had created exclusive civility, requiring allegiance to Rome and her leaders to participate in even the most basics of trades in the city. If you wanted to buy, sell, trade, craft, study, i.e. make a living, loyalty, to the city's politics, which were religious, remember, was required. Otherwise, you were on the outside, confined to eke out existence off the ladder, unable to achieve what the culture said was the best good, the prominence of citizenship, to be an insider in the benefit of Smyrna, and also to be a person of influence at the top of the ladder. 
But here's the real kicker. While we might expect this pressure, this squeezing of tribu- or tribulation to come from those pagan Roman trade guilds, which is where they would have felt a lot of it, or even maybe the, the temple of the Roman gods, right? Maybe where you kind of expect opposition to, this, to a life of faith in Jesus. The sad truth was the pressure came most, most abundantly and exactly from the synagogue of Satan, in verse 9. From those in the city that shared a root of faith with the Jesus followers of Smyrna. That's important. Jewish faith had a pass of sorts in the, when it came to the emperor worship in the first century. Their loyalty that allowed one to participate in the economics and politics of daily life, this emperor worship, for the Jews at least, they didn't have to go into the temples to worship. They could abstain from emperor's direct worship as a deity by pledging their fidelity to his causes at least. They didn't have to go worship and say that the emperor was God, but they had to to at least show a faithfulness to the game of the city, the politics, religion, and intermingling of, of of economics and all these things. This accommodation allowed the Jews to participate in the city, but retained some distinction. They were Jews in all the historical and ethnic sense, but like the Jews in Jerusalem at Jesus' trial and execution, they played both sides of the game. There, after all, are ways to get ahead for God when you leverage the powers of this world. Or at least so the Jews thought, right? Like if we, if we just leverage the power, we'll have the influence. We won't get kicked out. Life on the margins is you can't influence the city for any sort of good, right? So let's play the game as much as we can play the game. But we'll be a little bit distinct. We'll keep our distinction, but we'll play the game. Like many spiritual and church people today, many Jews in the first century were offended by Jesus' claim that through him came freedom from sin and death, which of course assumed that those whom Jesus was inviting into life were dead in sin and enslaved to something other than their own wills. If you remember John chapter 8 in Jesus' dialogue there. Rather than receive God's rescue, they would rebel against God's rule just as the enemy of God himself had done. Like the enemy who is called the accuser, the blasphemer, the slanderer, Throughout our scriptures, certain Smyrna Jews made it a point not merely to remove the Jesus followers from their places of worship, but also to make sure that the governing officials knew they were an illegal, contentious, and dangerous rabble. Their means of affliction was slander, blasphemy against God's children, going as far as making up dramatic lies about the Jesus followers, claiming the way of Jesus was detrimental to the city's good and disloyal to the game that actually the Jesus ones weren't just on the outside keeping to their own. They were actually, their way of life actually impacted and took away what the goal of the city and the citizens of the city should be. It's important to note, though, that while Jesus says that it was the synagogue of Satan that slanders Jesus' followers, where they receive the most acute kind of attacks, it is the devil, in verse 10, who will inflict this upcoming squeezing, this upcoming tribulation. The devil is the principal enemy of God and his people, not culture or cults or particular people, though they often work in union, knowingly or not, with the spiritual forces of evil influencing people. And I think it's important that Jesus distinguishes that. He doesn't deny that they feel the pressure from the the religious insiders, from the ones closest to them that are like them, right? But who, who are inflicting and making their life of faith more difficult. He doesn't deny that. But he also says that the the root and the source of their affliction is from the enemy. 
We know that Smyrna's faith family shared in Jesus' experience of suffering, but Jesus wanted them to share too in his experience of life on the other side, to be one who didn't just die, but who lived again, by being, in verse 10, faithful unto death. Many assume that Jesus' letter to the Smyrna church doesn't have an admonishment. This letter, like, unlike the other letters, doesn't have, I have this against you. But our assumption of lack of admonishment comes more from the fact that we generally think of admonishment only in the strongest terms. We think that correction is only when it's a hard and firm correction. Like, I know what I have, this I have against you, right? But verse 10 helps us see Jesus is admonishing the Smyrna church. He's warning them of something to avoid, even in the midst of their difficulty. In verse 10, he says, do not fear. Do not fear. Now, Jesus said something in his life, in ministry, that sounds a lot like this. He says in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Slander, right? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus' words here on the Sermon on the Mount sounds a lot like his words to the church of Smyrna. But notice that while Jesus can't completely identify and thus empathize with the anguish and difficulty of such revile and suffering, he says, already happy, blessed, already whole and complete are you amid the tribulation. Because of that, rejoice and be glad. Trust and don't fear. Stay loyal to your vows, as Psalm 56 and Matt encouraged us with a to start our gathering. Fear, while natural, keeps us from experiencing the fullness of what we share with Jesus when we suffer. Fear, while natural, keeps us from experiencing the fullness of what we suffer with Jesus, what we share with Jesus when we suffer because of our loyalty, because of our way of life that honors His person, purpose, and manners. When we play the game differently, Fear was keeping the Smyrnans from the energy of hope that is paradoxically ours in suffering. Paul says it in Romans chapter 5. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces what? Hope. It's not that they're suffering just for their, their maturation. They're suffering so that they might actually know hope. Hope does not put them to shame. Because God's love has been poured out already into their hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why should they and we not fear? Because they know who Jesus is. Remember who Jesus is for them. He's the first, the last, the dead, and come alive. He's sovereign over all things. And what is proven in their testing. The reference to ten days or tribulation in verse 10 a suppression or lack is not only a reference to some specific hardship to come, and which did come several decades later, actually, and is chronicled in the martyrdom of Polycarp. But here at this moment, it is a reference back to a similar difficulty in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel, you may remember, and many of his fellow educated and gifted Jewish sisters and brothers were forced to leave their homes and exiled into Babylon. They had been conquered. And now they were pressed to accommodate to the ruling culture's collusion of politics and religion to live. They were already under pressure to play the game. And Daniel and several of his companions chose to be tested. Daniel approached his steward and said in chapter 1 of Daniel, Test your servants for ten days. 
The test was not of Daniel's faithfulness, his loyalty, but because of Daniel's faith and loyalty. Daniel and his companions, like the Smyrnans, were tested because they chose not to defile themselves with the entanglement, entangled way of the city. Listen, tribulation isn't chosen. Daniel did not choose to be ripped from his home, his family, or his place of faith. The squeezing wasn't something he chose. He didn't choose to make life harder on himself. Right? Tribulation isn't chosen. But it is inevitable. Testing, however, comes because of faith. Out of faith already present, already demonstrated, already grounded in something sure, testing proves what is true. When we're tested, we're not tested because we think we'll fail, because, because we'll fail, because God thinks we'll fail, and He wants to prove that we'll fail. We're tested because what's already true. That we have the faith. We are the people that God has made us to be. That's true in all the stories of testing throughout our scriptures. God doesn't test to prove wrong. He tests to prove what is true. Like Daniel, the Samaritans were being pressed to fit in, join in, play the game of the day, and accommodate Jesus' way into the way of politics, religion, and economics. Fear would be the thing that would keep them from acting through hope as Daniel and his friends did, acting as ones who were willing to let their faith be tested, not because they thought they wouldn't pass the test, but because they knew they would. And therefore, receiving the abundance of place, the transformative transformation for the salvation of the community and witness to the community that comes from living in a tested faith, with a tested faith. The sovereignty of Jesus defined the life of the Samaritan church, but it was the victory of Jesus that they needed to take hold of. Jesus makes two promises to those who conquer, those whose lives are loyal, responses, and kind. The first promise is the crown of life, the prize for the one who reaches the top of the ladder. Ironically, the church gets what the city and the synagogue of Satan wanted. They wanted a crown of civic honor and beauty. And what does Jesus give them? His crown. But they do so not by climbing the accommodation ladder, but by patient endurance. Receiving the prize, not through compromise or competition or combat, but laying down their lives, the culturally and religiously acceptable way of living, to share Jesus' life, a new and different. And that's because, and that's we know this because of the second part of the promise. They get a crown of life, so therefore they don't have to fear the second death. The second promise is freedom from the fear of the second death, a rabbinic term that summarizes God's final judgment of humanity and divinity. There is a physical death and a forever death, and God is the one who is over both. But remember what Jesus says about himself in chapter 1. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Jesus is the one who opens and closes the door to both life's physical ending and its forever. And Jesus said to his apprentices and all who become so, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, life forever, full and forever. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Did you notice what Jesus says that we pass from? From death to life. Jesus changes the sequence. It's not that we're born, then die. It's that we die, then live. 
We describe people as they were born on such and such a date and they died at such and such a date. Jesus describes us as they died on such and such a date and were born on such lived on such and such a date. That is the reverse of what we know, isn't it? We think of life as the beginning and death as the end, but Christ and those sharing in his life are described in opposite terms. Death is no longer an enemy to fear, but a passage to life fully and forever. And there's more. Because Jesus took on death, physical death, the the death that we all share, and is alive, we need not fear the stings of death in our daily living either. The daily deaths of life lived loyally and different. That doesn't mean it won't sting. We just don't fear the stings. The stings don't have the same effect. Here, says Pastor Eugene Peterson, we have one of those paradoxes that are strewn throughout all of Christians' life of faith. Until we're willing to die like Jesus, to be one who is dead and then lives again, we live neither deeply nor widely. Until we're ready to die to the game of life for the way that is life in Jesus, we can't live for Him freely, openly, and exuberantly. If we spend all of our energies trying to protect our interests, get everything we are conditioned to need out of life, to preserve what we have through negotiation and compromise with the opposition, to be ones who do not let our faith lead to our death. That's where faith will lead us, to death. We will live meagerly. But if we live at risk, if we live loyally investing what we've been given in the way of the giver, if we give up all in witness and commitment and love, we're released from death to live in the power of the resurrection, to live differently in the certainty of hope. So I know that's a lot. A lot of words on the words of Jesus. But remember, the words of Jesus aren't just written for you and me to hear and to process. They're written for us to hear and to process together. So that's what we're going to do for the next few moments. What I'd love for you to do is to, to to get into groups of three to four, Um, and we're going to have an opportunity just to discuss a few of the things today. So we'll have a minute of quiet. I'll pray for us, and then I want you to break up into groups of three or four. And we're actually going to do communion in groups as well. So hang out in your groups when you're discussing. I'll call you into a time of communion and give you instructions in just a moment. But here are the questions that we're going to discuss. You can go ahead and throw those up on on the screen, Amber. Where and in what ways are you feeling the squeeze of the game? How are we like Smyrna? Where are we feeling the squeeze? In the game of politics, religion, economics, and the commingling of life, in life, being called to a life of faith that feels at times very different than the life of our culture, where are we feeling a squeeze? In what ways is life squeezing you? What's the fear that's keeping you from the blessedness of sure hope? What's the fear that in the midst of that, that's keeping you from being tested, letting faith be improved, be proven? A fear that's maybe resisting the test or a fear that's maybe keeping you from actually resting in the character formation in this moment. It's resting in the certainty of hope that comes as you rejoice in the midst of suffering. So those are the questions that we'll discuss. Let me pray and then we can chat. Father, we thank you that wherever we find ourselves, individually or collectively. Today, Father, Lord, we find ourselves in a place of having the opportunity to trust you. To trust that your way, even though it doesn't lead necessarily always to the way of 
of easy fulfillment or even cultural success that sometimes feels in opposition to, to the things around us, whether that be economically, whether that be physically, whether that be emotionally or spiritually, Father Lord, it feels like we're outsiders at times. It's actually there in those places, Father Lord, that Jesus is with us, drawing out of us the life that He's given us, the faith that He's made ours, calling us in to life full and forever. If we simply not resist death, for we die to live again. And so I pray in these few moments that we have together, you'd help us to see that you'd help each other, to be able to help each other in your spirit, see where we are, long for where we long to be, and encourage each other to hold fast to the Jesus who is alive. And in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Break up groups of three or four. Ideally, no more than four, just because that will help us when it comes to communion time.